There's a remarkable building at the corner of Bloor Street West and St. George Street in downtown Toronto. It's made of limestone and glass. It's three stories high, but it doesn't look like any other three-story building you've seen. For one thing, it has a noticeable tilt with the roof swooping up from one end to the other and the walls askew. The inspiration for the design of this building was a shoebox. And that's because the building is home to the Bata Shoe Museum, the world's largest collection of footwear. More than 13,000 shoes, some of them almost 5,000 years old. Today on Countless Journeys, you'll hear all about the woman who was the driving force behind that museum, Sonia Bata, a key partner in the Bata Shoe Company that she and her husband Thomas led for many decades. You know, she really felt strongly that every single person should use whatever talents we have to um, better society and preserve the planet. That story today on Countless Journeys. Countless Journeys. I was fresh, you know. And I was given the opportunity to, to do and learn whatever I wanted. My grandmother and my family were part of that working class population that people refer to as blue collar workers. I arrived here in December 46 and I will never ever regret it. <laughs> never. Whenever I think of blue collar worker, I think of my grandmother ironing her blue shirt to go to work. Nous sommes venus ici, le Canada nous a donné le meilleur. Alors, donnons au Canada le meilleur. At that time, it was Portuguese women coming to Canada, like my mother. We were coming here to build a better life, but also to help build Canada. J'ai vraiment réalisé la force de ce pays. We live in a country where your beginning has really not much to do with your end. What you do in between is up to you. Welcome to Countless Journeys from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. My name is Paolo Pietro Paolo, and uh, I'm with Countless Journeys producer Tina Pitaway. Hey, Tina. Hey, Paolo. Tina, you're here to help us get to know the amazing Sonia Bata. That's right. And again, another incredible Canadian <laughs> that we're yeah. profiling. I, I, feel, I feel like we use the word incredible and amazing a lot, but, but it, that was it kind begs of the to bar. be used with these amazing <laughs> people, right? But I just did it, it again. Does. Exactly. <laughs> now, have you ever been to the Batashu Museum? You know, I've never been inside, but I must have walked past it hundreds of times during my years at U of T, which is oh, when it opened. Course. I remember the building going up, actually. And, uh, you know, it was always on, on my list of things to do someday. And then before you knew it, life took me away from Toronto and I'd, yeah. I'd never gotten around to going. But I can easily picture it uh, just by closing my eyes. It's yeah, not it's a building a, you easily forget. No, it's a it's a remarkable building. And and, and the museum is is what Sonia Bata is widely known for. So I was, I was interested to learn uh, more about that story in terms of how that came together, as well as understanding what brought her and her husband to Canada in the first place. And, and what brought her here was the Bata Shoe Company, wasn't it? That's right. To come to a country like Canada that was free and open to opportunity and open to multiculturalism, I think they found that very, very exciting. This is Christine Schmidt. I am Sonia and Thomas Bada's daughter. They found Canada as a fairly young country uh, 
just a land of incredible opportunity where you could, if you really wanted to do something, you could jump right in and you could do it. I mean, that's, that's why so many people have come to Canada. When did the Battas come to Canada? Well, Thomas Bata moved to Ontario prior to he and Sonia dating, actually. Uh, he was born in Prague in the former Czechoslovakia, and he was working for the family business that his father had co-founded in 1894. Wow. 1894. That's, so the roots yeah. of the company go that far back, eh? Yeah. And in fact, the Battas had been shoemakers for some 300 years, if you can believe Whoa. it, going back eight generations by the time Thomas's father uh, is involved. Oh, that's astounding. Now, by the time Thomas arrives in Canada, as I mentioned, it was 1939. He was 29 years old. Uh, his father, Thomas Sr., who had run the company uh, for many years, had actually died in a plane crash uh, several years earlier in 1932. Hmm. So Thomas's uncle, Jan Bada, had taken over as head of the Bada Company, which was a huge multinational company that encompassed a lot more than shoes. They were into uh, the energy sector, agriculture, forestry, transportation, and a, a lot more beyond that. Wow, that's, that's big. So how many, how many people did they employ? Well, at the time of Thomas Sr.'s death in 1932, uh, the parent company employed more than 16,000 people around the oh, world. Wow. Yeah, it's a huge number. So huh. by 1938-1939, with war looming, uh, Thomas and his uncle Jan made it a real priority to get operations up and running in Canada. Uh, they chose an area in southeastern Ontario to build, essentially from scratch, uh, a company town called Bottawa. Bottawa. And the name comes from a combination of the name Bada and Ottawa. Uh, and so I, I, I think it, it's actually sort of a great name. Oh, okay. I get it. Okay, sure. It makes sense. Yeah. Bada in Ottawa. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Bottawa is on the west bank of the Trent River in what is today the city of Quinty West. Christine Schmidt. This was, in fact, where my father really started his leadership of the business. And it was their landing spot in Canada. And he came with a hundred Czech families to set up the business here. And Badawa was selected for various reasons for location. So the, the families actually arrived, most of them in, in July and August of 1939. There was a small village nearby, and it was these 100 families that arrived and who actually stayed with local families for the first few months because they had to build these little buildings that I remember as a child, which were somewhat reflective of Le Corbusier's design, very sort of square little houses. I, uh, I'm just looking at, at some of the pictures online of this community that Christine is describing, and it's remarkable. It, the houses are just as she describes. They're, they're very square. Yes. <laughs> and it looks like they've gone up very quickly. W w where were these families from in, in Czechoslovakia? They were from a community called Zelin, which was a company town in the Moravia region of what is now the Czech Republic. And it, too, was a company town created by the Bata Company. And as Christine mentioned, uh, they arrived in the summer of 1939. And shortly thereafter, the um, Czechoslovakia was invaded by the, the Germans. And so they actually became enemy aliens 
which was a little bit difficult, as you can imagine. Here they are in a new country, and uh, with the start of war, there must have been a, a huge amount of stress on, on everybody. Uh, isn't that interesting? So they, they flee Europe, essentially, to flee the war, mm-hmm. and yet the effects of the war followed them here to Canada. Yeah, absolutely. It must have, I, I, I can't imagine living under that kind of stress. For sure. And uh, now I'm looking at these photos that you sent me a link to uh, of Badawa, and I, I see images of factory equipment, quite a lot of, of factory equipment and huge pieces of, of machinery. Mm-hmm. Um, was that shipped over from Czechoslovakia a- as well? It was, in fact. Uh, you can imagine it being wartime. Um, you know, manufacturing was basically being devoted to the war effort. So... Uh-huh grabbing as much equipment as you can and getting it out of the country if, if it was you know tethered to your business and how 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 you manufactured product uh, was critical uh, and a, a pretty fraught process if you can imagine and there was a German freighter uh, apparently that was carrying their possessions that arrived in the port of Montreal And it was being requested, the the Germans requested it not to allow anything to disembark, but that the ship should return to Germany. And it was only through somebody who apparently notified my father that this was happening, who managed to make a few phone calls, and the RCMP managed to turn the ship around (laughs) and actually get it to unload all of this equipment. Otherwise, the factory never would have been built. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that that would kind of be a stressful situation. <laughs> yeah. And that's incredibly challenging stuff for for any business leader to be trying to manage. And, and, and for, for Thomas Jr., what a way to cut your teeth in the family business. It really is high-stakes stuff. Uh, now, this, as I say, is all uh, before Thomas and Sonia got married. Uh, but it's important to just lay a bit of the foundation for what the roots of the business were here uh, in the Canadian operations that she would be marrying into in, in just a few years' time. All right. So so now that we know a bit of that backstory of Thomas Bada, tell me more about Sonia. Well, Sonia Vetstein uh, was born in 1926 in Zurich. Uh, she was raised there. And her family and the Badas were actually connected through business. My mother's father was an international lawyer based in Switzerland and worked with my father's company. So they had known each other, but there was a 12-year age difference. So although they had met a number of times, it really wasn't until my father was about 18 that they actually noticed each other. My father was an amateur um, pilot, and he actually took my mother on a flight in a little prop plane to propose. <laughs> and so we've always joked that she had to say yes, and it actually foreshadowed many millions of miles that they traveled together building the business. Sonia and Thomas uh, were married in 1946, and that's when she joined him in Canada. And they were thrilled that they felt that they could in, in slightly different ways, but each in their own ways, make a contribution to this country. Hmm. And so Sonia joined Thomas in Badawa in 1946, and I'm guessing that must have been quite some kind of culture shock, moving from Geneva to small town Ontario. 
Yes, I I think you would be correct in that uh, assumption. But Christine Schmidt told me that her mother dove right in and got to work in what would be the first of a lifetime of volunteer projects in Canada. Imagine her finding herself pretty isolated uh, in, in a small town in Ontario, not someone to sit around and cook dinner, um, although she did that too very well. <laughs> but, so she starts the Girl Guides there, and you know that culminated in her being on the international board of the Girl Guides <laughs> for years. Right from the get-go, she had that kind of energy that some people have. Hey, Tina. Absolutely. And, and, and Sonia Bada was, apart from the volunteer activities, a key figure in, in the building up of the actual Bada business, wasn't she? Yes, she was. Certainly in terms of the Canadian operations uh, being relocated from Czechoslovakia, uh, she was coming into the business several years after Thomas had started overseeing its transformation, which was really a huge undertaking given what happened during the war. She... Um... She definitely believed in my father's vision. Uh, so she was 100% a partner in that. I'm sure that that must have been critical to the success of the company. I mean, it's we're right after World War II, the, the immediate aftermath of the war. What kind of state was the company in at the time? Well, the parent company, uh, Bata Corporation, it was hugely affected by the war uh, with Soviet-controlled communist governments across Eastern Europe uh, nationalizing most industry, uh, including many businesses owned by the Bata family. Uh, The shoe operations, of course, were Thomas Bata's main concern post-war, and being headquartered in Canada uh, certainly provided stability for the company, and it was in a real position for expansion. His, his mission statement was to be shoemaker to the world. And he wanted to provide great quality, affordable footwear everywhere in the world. There's actually a wonderful uh, photograph that we have in our archives of a group of about 12 young men who are s- sitting around a blackboard. And on the blackboard are the names of about 12 companies. And these young men were being trained to basically go forth and set up the business in these different companies. And they were given a thousand pairs of shoes to take with them. And that was their startup capital. So they had to land in this country on their own. I mean, there was, you know, no communication in those days. (laughs) Um, Sell the footwear find how they were going to start producing the, the and they did have equipment um, that, that went with it too. Here I am landing a new country, just me and a thousand pairs of shoes. Yes. <laughs> what an image. <laughs> and, and what a challenge. And what a challenge. And and now within the company, did, did Sonia Bata have a specific role or responsibility that she took on? I asked Christine Schmidt uh, what her mother's role was within the business. And she said that her mother actually preferred not to have an official title. Uh, she didn't want to be restricted to one specific area. She felt if she didn't have a title that she could actually run different projects and influence in different areas rather than being siloed <laughs> into into one title and and so she um, she was a very significant player in the in the growth of the company I mean as she was traveling with with my father building the shoe business um, and with her curiosity she be, she really became fascinated with the different ways that different cultures interpreted footwear because it was beyond just the availability of the raw materials or the climatic 
needs that you know would obviously influence that. When you think about um, creating collections of, of footwear for the different environments, the different countries that we were in in those days, it was very much um, looking at how to design footwear that was useful in that country at that time. So it wasn't just a matter of taking European fashion and um, shipping it over there. It was a matter of really designing something that was useful, that would fit, um, because feet are different in different parts of the world. And of course, climates are different. So she was very instrumental in that, sort of in the innovation of, of products and collection design. And then she, of course, started becoming a more and more important partner to him. That, that is so fascinating to, to have this view into so many different cultures and, and to be looking specifically at shoes and, mm-hmm. and what, what shoes can say about a culture. And also, it's it's a time where flight was really starting to open up the world. Uh, so getting to these far-flung corners was all new, uh, and its impact on business was unprecedented. You can certainly see how these kinds of experiences and Sonia's curiosity and passion uh, for footwear would lead to her collecting shoes. Yeah. And it's this wonderful combination of a really driven focus uh, on the business side and understanding what would make their products relevant in various cultures slash markets, but also. And here her her love of design, um, you know, shows up again. When she started collecting, she was really collecting for product development ideas for the business she pretty soon you know, understood that there, there were so many fantastic stories to tell. And, and because she really celebrated um, different cultures around the world, she felt that this was something that needed to be preserved. A lot of the traditional ways of making these shoes were disappearing with manufacturing like ours um, coming into these different countries. And, and so she, she started then collecting seriously for preservation and for research and never doing anything halfway. Uh, the collection grew in importance and she started um, hiring a team that would help her with the collecting, with the conservation. And then she had to share it because it was, I mean, for years it was in the basement of the, um, the shoe company's headquarters. But when she decided that it should be shared, she wanted to create an institution that was not a corporate museum at all. Um, there are very few Bata shoes in the collection, in fact. She wanted it to be really a center for learning and for celebrating all of these differences that would help us to understand the world and sort of the, it's, it's really the story of humanity through what we have on our feet. So in 1979, Sonia Bata established and funded the Bata Shoe Museum Foundation. And she decided then that she wanted to create a permanent home for the collection and worked with Ray Moriyama, who's such a talented architect and who um, together they built what I think is a jewel of, of a building here in Toronto. And that led to the creation of the Batashoe Museum, uh, which opened to the public in 1995. So she really felt that design affected 
everything in our lives and that better design would make our lives better. And then she wanted to create an atmosphere within the museum with changing exhibitions that would really excite people to that it's not just a bunch of pretty shoes. Uh, that every exhibition that we've done and we curate our own exhibitions for the most part um, have real messages. So, I mean, there's so many, um, so many interesting messages that you can tell through the footwear. Yeah. So, for example, the oldest piece in the museum's collection is a pair of funerary sandals that date back uh, 4,500 years. They're ancient Egyptian. This is Elizabeth Semelhack. And I'm the creative director and senior curator of the Badashi Museum. And what's amazing about them is that they clearly are meant to reference footwear and they are um, foot sized. But the way that they were constructed, they're, they're uh, wood that's been painted with gesso. And then they have um, little pegs in them to hold the thong that would go around the foot to hold this pair of sandals onto the foot. And so you know, at first glance, they, they appear reasonable and actually like some kind of wearable footwear. But on closer inspection, um, you can see that they were never worn. And in fact, they were created specifically for inclusion within a gravesite. And so the ancient Egyptians had the belief that you needed to take it with you when you went. And that included everyday objects such as footwear. But the footwear didn't necessarily have to be real footwear that could be worn in real life, it could be symbolic footwear. And so that's what we have uh, in this particular pair of sandals is something that basically is almost a sculptural stand-in for, for the sandals that the deceased would need in the next world. Wow, that's pretty cool. And and my gosh, do I ever miss visiting museums. Just oh, hearing her describe, right? You know, yeah. and just hearing her describe one one pair of the tens of thousands of shoes that are in that collection is such a delight. And I have to say, you know, walking past that building so many times, I don't think I really ever realized the scope of what's mm -hmm. inside or how unique a museum it actually is. Yeah, it's 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 a one of a kind in the world. That's, that's really cool. Now, now, did, did Sonia Bata have any favorite shoes in the museum in the collection? Well, Christine Schmidt told me that it was always the last piece added to the collection. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> she, she had a real passion uh, for the Arctic, uh, in fact. And over the years, uh, she was really devoted to preserving objects uh, and really fostering traditions uh, from that area and other northern cultures. Elizabeth Semelhack tells us a bit more. She was very devoted to collecting footwear and information about footwear from the circumpolar regions. Mrs. Bata was Swiss, and being a new Canadian, she became very interested in the uh, indigenous footwear of Canada. And so one of the early things that she did was she sponsored field research into the Canadian Arctic. And the researchers were charged not with buying boots left and right, but instead with working with community seamstresses and learning about how it was that they made their footwear, what the purposes were, where there was difference in um, cultural expression. And so that was successful and resulted in a, a, a wonderful collection of Inuit material in, the, in our collection. And then she uh, proceeded to sponsor those same researchers to go to all the circumpolar 
countries. And again, um, talk with the seamstresses there, um, stay with them for a while to learn their different footwear making practices. That's Elizabeth Semelhack. And here again is Sonia's daughter, Christine Schmidt. She was so interested in learning in depth about everything. She could look at a shoe and not only identify everything about that shoe because of her knowledge of the techniques of shoemaking in different parts of the world and throughout history, but then she would go into a whole discussion on the importance of the symbolism that was on that shoe to the culture that it came from, or how they were influenced by what was going on in the world. So you understand this, this curiosity just sort of encompassed every, everything that she did. I just love that, that sense of curiosity and taking a, 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 an everyday simple item that we take for granted, like a shoe, and being able to read so much into it and to use it as a starting mm-hmm. point for so much. That's just fantastically cool. And, you know, to, to be able to take something that your business is uh, reliant on uh, and to turn it into such a, a, a passion from another perspective, I just thought is is just wonderful. And pretty unique, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not, not something you hear about every day. Now, Christine mentioned her mother's involvement with Girl Guides when she first came to Canada, but she was also involved with, with other causes, right? But what else was, was she involved with? Well, there were certainly uh, a lot of causes over the years, uh, but a couple really stand out in terms of her impact. And in the early 1970s, uh, she joined the International Board of Trustees for the World Wildlife Fund. And that was the beginning of a nearly five-decade commitment uh, to that group uh, and their projects. She was a key fundraiser for them, uh, helping to raise millions of dollars over the years for research into ecosystems and and wildlife throughout the world. I saw in some of the background I was reading um, that her passion for the Arctic was evident in the projects she supported with the World Wildlife Fund. Yeah, and in fact, she raised funds going back decades uh, for the World Wildlife Fund Canada's first conservation program called Whales Beneath the Ice. Uh, Some of that funding went towards protecting Isabella Bay uh, on North Baffin Island for bowhead whales. And there were also projects that protected Arctic river estuaries that were important to beluga whales. Uh, And there was one whale in particular that she felt a special affinity towards. And her, her last uh, project with the World Wildlife Fund uh, is actually a narwhal project. The narwhal to her was like the unicorn. It was such a magical, magical creature and that we had to do what we could to preserve it. Mrs. Bada, before her death in 2018, funded a five-year project specific to narwhal research that is funded through to 2022. Oh, that's fantastic. And, you, you know... The narwhal is a bit, a bit of a magical creature. It is, uh, yeah. And I mean, what creature isn't really in the context of of threatened habitats? Mm-hmm. Uh, and to see her step up like that and and take an interest and take a lead is inspiring. Absolutely. Now I I understand that she was also an honorary naval captain. <laughs> she was indeed. Growing up. Uh, during the the war uh, in Switzerland, every um, student had to do their part. And she was part of what they called, I guess, the land army. So she was sent to a farm to help the farmers, um, you know, look after the children and bring in the crops and that sort of thing. And 
I think that was quite a big influence on her feeling that, you know, we all need to do our bit and we should all contribute. And that especially for young people, having an opportunity to give back to their country is quite important. And so her big um, support of the armed forces was in, in the reservist program. So she did a lot of work uh, persuading other companies that it was an important uh, opportunity for them to allow their employees and encourage their employees to be reservists. And so that that is, you know, what she used to take. Um, I think they were called executrucks. And uh, she would take a number of business owners or leaders to one of the armed forces locations and actually have them see what the training was all about and what the armed forces were doing to help persuade them that this was something that they should be involved with. And she absolutely loved that. Wow, you re really get a sense um, of her people skills um, mm -hmm. and her desire to connect people and the energy that, that she had to, to commit to all these various undertakings uh, and projects that she took on over the yeah. course of her life. What an extraordinary life. Uh, the curiosity too, just, just fantastic. And that energy. I mean, let's not forget, she was also a mother. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, not everyone has a life like Sonia Bata and not everyone has a mother like her either. Uh, and that's something I asked Christine about as well. So, you know, she was a somewhat unusual mother because uh, she wasn't the mom that was at home having baked cookies when we got home from school. <laughs> but, you know, what an incredible role model. Um, she really she really pushed us to have um, serious purpose in our lives, to think about our lives as Again, a, a huge opportunity to look at how we could contribute. And um, I think having that imbued in you from a very young age, you really, that is where you get the most pleasure. So it becomes not just an unselfish thing to do, but a, a selfish thing to do. Because I think all of us, um, you know, really felt that the, the greatest the greatest joy comes from actually feeling that you've made a difference in, in some way in, in somebody's life. So I think that was a very important, um, very important thing that, that she actually sort of was our role model for. And then, uh, you know, another, um, she, she really opened our eyes at a very young age to how incredible this world is. That's Christine Schmidt, daughter of Sonia Bada. What, a, what an incredible life uh, and a fascinating story. Tina Pitaway, thanks for sharing the story of Sonia Bada today. My pleasure. Thanks, Paolo. That's Tina Pitaway, the producer of Countless Journeys. My name is Paolo Pietro Paolo. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Countless Journeys. Countless Journeys is produced by Tina Pitaway, mixed by Natasha Aziz, for the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. To learn more about the museum, visit pier21.ca. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, follow, and share. Bye for now. <laughs>